Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, Data Nation. I'm really excited about this episode that you're about to listen to. It's not the traditional one where I interview a data leader, but instead it will just be myself, Travis, discussing the what I would consider 12 of the most important data architecture principles that you should be considering when building out modern data architecture. This is just my opinion, obviously, Depending on your use cases and your requirements, these are going to vary, but these principles are pretty foundational and key components that should be thought of when you're designing your architecture. I hope this is valuable to you. I would love to hear what are your principles you're designing a data architecture. Um, Feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn or send me an email. And Without further ado, let's jump into the first key principle. Number one is culture is everything. In the Big Data and AI Executive Survey by New Vantage Partners, 25% of organizations have data culture within their firms. That means that three out of four organizations do not have a data culture within their firm. The reason I put this as number one is no matter the tools and technologies and the patterns that are utilized to build out your data architecture, They're all meaningless if the culture is not there. So what does that mean? To me, that means that culture starts from the top. The executives believe in the data, they'll be investing in the data, and that should trickle down. But it also means that all the stakeholders that want and need access to the data have access to the data. This is not just data analysts, data engineers, and data scientists. This is also the business users. They need to be comfortable accessing the data. They need to be confident in accessing the data. They need to be comfortable if the data doesn't look right that they speak up. Everyone is in this together and it's a culture to treat data as an asset. In an earlier episode I did with Doug Laney, episode two, he's the author of Infonomics. He wrote a book, The Importance of Treating Your Data as an Asset. So I highly recommend checking that episode out if you are curious more in that space. Number two, Metadata is king. According to a survey done by Irwin and Dataversity in 2020 on data governance, 58% of companies have difficulty understanding the quality of their key data sources. Honestly, I would expect that number to be much higher. Six out of 10 organizations have difficulty understanding the quality of their key data sources. Modern data architectures utilize metadata throughout the pipeline. Everything 
from data quality and governance. It's critical to understand the context of the data across the organization, who owns it, where does it originate, the sensitivity, accessibility, and most important, the accuracy. Modern data pipelines are driven by metadata. They're dynamic. All of that is being driven off of metadata that is captured. Deployments, data ops is critical moving forward. All of that is driven off of metadata about the data. What are the different configurations for the data in each environment? What are the different unit tests? All of that is driven off of metadata. The third principle is data democratization. We all know that data is necessary, but why? At the end of the day, data empowers employees to be more efficient and make decisions based on evidence, which allows them to pivot quicker than their competitors. Data is a shared asset, and everyone across the organization should have a common understanding of the various data assets. Think about it. Do your metrics have the same meaning across different departments? For example, do your monthly sales across business units mean the same? Does revenue in HR mean the same as what's in sales? Regardless of your role or technical ability, you should have access to the data you need to perform your role within the organization. A data engineer should not be the gatekeeper or the bottleneck to view organization data. Eliminating regional and business unit and department data silos are also more effective ways to ensure that the organizational stakeholders have access to the data they need to get the answers to the business problems they are solving. Key principle number four, build for flexibility, anticipate change. It's important when you're designing a modern data architecture that you create it in a way that is modular and the components are abstracted. This will allow you to take a best-of-breed approach and enable you to change out the various components based on requirements without affecting downstream or upstream dependencies, or at least limiting the consequences when doing so. One analogy that I like to think of is when you're eating a steak, you want a steak knife. Maybe when you're getting butter, you want a butter knife. You want to have the best tool for the requirements or for the work you're trying to do. Consider the next few things when you're designing for flexibility. First is, can you design your platform to be cloud agnostic? Just because AWS or Azure may have great products and tools today, that may change in the future. And if you do want to switch off of those cloud-specific offerings, what will that involve? Try not to back yourself in a corner if you don't have to. And sometimes you want to use like Azure Event Hubs versus Kafka. And, and there are times when you do want to use those cloud offerings. But just be thinking about what this may look like in the long run. You should also be designing solutions that can be easily deployed. Take advantage of Docker and Kubernetes. They're an open source container orchestration system for automating application deployment, scaling, and management. Another way to add up an extraction layer is to utilize APIs to standardize data access and kind of create that abstraction layer. This will allow you to change out underlying technologies without impacting the consumer. For example, if you have if you're always accessing data through an API, you can change out that underlying database without impacting your consumers. You just have to repoint the APIs to your no, to your new data storage layer. All right, this next key principle 
is bulletproof deployments with data ops. If you're in the data space and you do not have a smooth automated process to promote your data products from lower environments to prod, you're missing out. Data ops is a relatively new term, but it originates from your traditional DevOps from software development. Essentially, it's the process, the tools, and the framework to promote your code to production. It's a mixture of the agile methodology and the DevOps principles to deliver high-quality data products in a short period of time. There's a great podcast I did with Chris Burge, the CEO of Data Kitchen, which is a data ops platform. I highly recommend checking that episode out to get more details into how to implement data ops. He also authored a book all about data ops. You can get that free ebook from datakitchen.com. I definitely recommend giving that a read as well. But data ops is critical to releasing high quality code that you can monitor and test in a repeatable fashion very efficiently. This next key principle is streamline reverse ETL. And that term, reverse ETL, may sound unfamiliar, but the concept should not. Essentially, reverse ETL is just the process of once your data is in the data warehouse, then extracting it to other business applications. Typically, these may be applications to support your sales and marketing departments. Large organizations will have hundreds of different applications to support those different business functions, and typically, they want to, once that data has been cleaned and transformed and enriched, they want to ingest that back into their systems. So having a, a methodology in place to streamline the infrastructure to support those applications is critical in a modern architecture. This could look like having standard APIs to interact with these systems. We can also go with some SaaS tools that already integrate with these tools to help speed up that process. You can also go with open source tools like Airbyte, which facilitate ETL and reverse ETL. Okay, this next key principle is consistent data ingestion. 75% of organizations use six or more integration tools, according to a survey done by Talon. This is a critical component to modern data architectures. Typically, Ingestion at large organizations patterns vary widely. Typically, that's due to varying data sources, varying requirements. Is this batch data? Is it streaming data? Is it more event data? Is it relational data? Is it non-relational data? Is it big data? Is it small data? All of those different requirements really dictate how your ingestion framework will look like. Going forward, your modern data architecture should be leading these tools as much as possible to just a, a small set that can handle all the use cases that you need to. All right, coming on up on key principle number eight, reduce data copies and movement. No matter what the industry is calling your data storage these days, whether it's data lake, data warehouse, lake house, data river, and who knows what the next term will be. You should always try to reduce data copies and movement. Simplify your data platform. Not all data use cases require you to copy 
data, and only doing so only creates more costs and overhead. Copying data can quickly turn into a game of trying to find the source of truth if it's not well documented. There are a few different methods to reduce your data movement. Many of kind of the data warehouses nowadays, so your Snowflake, your Synap, your Google BigQuery, they can run queries across all of your data and join data from your data warehouse to data stored in your lake. You no longer need to copy your data from your lake into your warehouse to query it. And you can kind of query it using SQL engines like Presto and other virtualization tools to eliminate that copying. There was a great episode I did with H.O. Maycott, the founder of Molecula, where we talk about creating a real-time feature store to support artificial intelligence and machine learning needs. Definitely check out that if you're interested in learning more about kind of real-time streaming of data from the source. Key principle number nine is automate data monitoring. More than 80% of respondents in a survey from Datafold said that they regularly run into data quality issues. Yet, 45% of organizations are not using any data governance tools. We all have heard horror stories of presenting BI metrics to leadership and being asked why sales have decreased by 28%. You know, is that metric accurate? Did the source data change? Was a bug introduced into the code? Why did that metric decrease so much? How confident are you in that metric? Um, typically, if you don't have the gov- governance in place, you don't feel too comfortable saying that metric is 100% accurate. There are two main types of tests to automate from a data quality perspective. The first one is unit tests. These test the actual code and the logic are working per the requirements. Every time you do a deployment to prod, you can run your unit test to make sure the functionality is still occurring as expected. Another sort of automated test you can do is metric monitoring. This identifies if your metrics or data is changing in unexpected ways. So you know, this is utilizing the metadata principle that we just discussed earlier. If your metric deviates more than 10%, are you aware of that before you get to prod? You can set up those types of alerts and automate it monitoring within your data pipeline. Did a great podcast episode with Lior Gavish, the co-founder of Monte Carlo. So definitely recommend checking out that episode to learning more of how to increase the quality and the reliability of your data. Key principle number 10, prevent vendor lock-in. Now, over the past few years, there have been a plethora of new data tools and technologies introduced to the market. Typically, they fall into three broad categories, open source, cloud service providers, and then third parties that run their tools on the cloud service providers. When deciding on technologies for your data architecture, it's important to design it in a way that allows you to create a best-of-breed approach where you can swap out technologies in the future if requirements change, costs increase, or better technology is created. You want to try to avoid technologies that lock you in. They can lock you in based off of if it's specific kind of syntax to manipulate it. An example of this is if you're building a, if you're doing all of your transformations within a transformation tool like Informatica or Azure Data Factory, it's going to be a lot more difficult to switch out to another integration tool or transformation tool. Whereas if you were to keep all of that transformation logic within SQL or within Python, it's much easier to then switch the orchestrator portion. So as you're designing your architecture, it's important to think about how locked in are you into the tools that you are 
utilizing. Principle number 11 is prioritizing data quality. Gartner suggests that organizations lose between 10 and $14 million annually due to poor data. This principle seems so obvious, but at the same time, everyone is struggling with it to have clean, high-quality data. Data quality is not owned by a single person or a single team. It is something that should be collectively owned by all of the stakeholders. If someone sees a metric that appears to be off, they should have an avenue to raise that up to the appropriate stakeholders. You know, what you don't want to happen is have misspelling of customer names or sending messages to deceased customers. A modern data architecture has data quality components built in throughout the process all the way from the source to the target. For example, for the source, as you're looking at the schema, and you can be you can have metadata describing the data that's coming in, and if that deviates so much, then you get notified. And you should also, when you're transforming the data, if data doesn't meet the requirements or the expected values, then you can alert the appropriate stakeholders to resolve. You do not just load the data as it is. You cleanse it and you clean it. Having good data quality is paramount to having a successful data platform that is trusted by the end users. And last but not least, we have data principle number 12, which is open source. There's been a lot of traction in the open source space over the last five to 10 years, particularly in the data space. I I think the big kind of elephant in the room, no pun intended, was when Hadoop launched on the scene about 10 years ago when folks started dealing with big data and moving to the data lake. Obviously, there's a lot of complexities with that, but I think that really sparked and spearheaded it. Since then, we have seen huge strides in kind of the open source data landscape. Obviously, we have Kafka from an event streaming perspective. We have Apache Spark for your big data transformation. Obviously, it supports other use cases, but that's the main one. You have Apache Airflow for orchestration. You have Presto as a SQL engine on top of your data lake. Um, there's just a there. There are hundreds of open source tools. Obviously, some the ones I mentioned are a lot. They have a lot larger community surrounding it, but I think there's definitely momentum gaining in this space, and a lot of organizations are like the flexibility of going with an open source tool that they can actually manipulate theirs without kind of being locked in to a vendor. And I think as data architectures progress, we'll continue to see some large improvements in these tools. But open source isn't right for all organizations or for all the use cases. It just depends on what your requirements are and what is the skill set available within your team. I'm also seeing a lot of traction with enterprises, um, with vendors that are creating managed solutions utilizing these open source tools. For example, you have Confluent for Apache Kafka. You have Databricks for Spark. You have Ahana for Presto. These are all vendors that are built on top of open source tools. So you can still get the flexibility of the open source tools without actually having to manage it and operate it yourselves. Open source tools really hit on a lot of the key principles mentioned earlier. So you're not being tied into a vendor. 
They're typically cloud agnostic. So I think as you build out your modern data architecture, open source tools definitely be something you're looking at. They're not always the best for all use cases, but should be considered. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.